if you subscribe to a digital streaming service, if you're an avid reader and you frequent the bookstore, if you like to watch movies, uh, I encourage you sometime to look and to see how many titles, how many television series, how many movies uh, are focused in some way on crime, investigation, or law enforcement. Um, I think our entertainment industry and our publishers know that there's something, there's some appetite in us as human beings that are fascinated by law enforcement and crimes, solving crimes, and, and, and just the whole world of investigation. If you talk to someone in law enforcement, they will tell you that there's very little in our television drama series that reflects uh, what is real. Um, our law enforcement officers wish that you could take a single strand of hair and put it onto a computer and it analyzes it. And in a matter of seconds, you have a full DNA report on a potential perpetrator. Our, our law enforcement agents long for the idea of being able to just walk up to a random doorknob and put a piece of tape on it and get a fingerprint and, and scan it and minutes later know who entered that building. Um, but, but, but something that all these shows have in common, whether they're based upon real stories or just simply creative drama, is that they all talk about evidence. And something that is real, whether it's on television or in real life, is that the more evidence you have, the more you can understand what's happening. The more evidence you have, the, the clearer picture you have of what's unfolded. This morning... Uh, if you're watching online or obviously if you're here or whatever day it is you're listening uh, for those on the podcast, I hope that you'll not only understand that there is something in life that we have overwhelming evidence for. There's actually a struggle in this world that there's overwhelming evidence for. But there's also an alternative to what the evidence suggests. In our world, there is overwhelming evidence that we struggle to value human life. There's overwhelming evidence in our papers, on our news shows, the online news forums we read, our social media posts, our blogs, our conversations, that we struggle to value. We struggle to treat people with value. The evidence is all around us. Yesterday was the anniversary of that landmark legislation, Roe v. Wade. And many would cite um, our ability or the legality of the ability to terminate, to destroy a human life inside the womb as evidence that we struggle with the value of human life. But the evidence exceeds that. It goes beyond life inside the womb. It's life beyond the womb. If you look at any minor-sized city, probably 15,000, 20,000 or more, most counties in the United States of America, there are whole departments within law enforcement dedicated to investigating crimes against children. That's evidence that we struggle with the value of human life, is it not? In, in just a few weeks, the Super Bowl will be held in Los Angeles. And it's been 
in more widespread news over the last decade, but the Super Bowl in the United States of America is one of the largest days for trafficking people in sex in the entire world. That people will come to the city of Los Angeles and they will trade people like they are commodities. They will purchase sexual pleasure from human beings who have no choice. Is that not evidence of our struggle and our disregard for the value of human life? That we can look across the world and we can see that there are children and adults enslaved around the world. Human trafficking is a billion dollar year industry. Does that not speak to our disregard for the value of human life? And even if we take sexual exploits at the Super Bowl or human trafficking aside, what do we make of just the global industry centered around sexual content? That we as people would treat others and their bodies as though it's something to be consumed. Does that not reflect upon our disregard for the value of human life? What about the prevalence of violent crime? What about bullying? What about fist fights? What about what might even be considered petty crime that someone could go and take from another? Think about the prevalence of scammers who are preying upon vulnerable people, oftentimes the elderly. And I even know some of you probably in this room have been victimized. Does that not speak to our disregard for the value of human life? What about the way we talk about one another? What about the way we treat those in our household when no one's watching? Don't all those things speak to the evidence, the overwhelming evidence that we struggle to appreciate, to uphold the value of human life? The evidence is all around us. But there is good news. The God who created Adam and Eve the God who rescued his people through Noah and his faith, the, the God who called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, the, the God who called Isaac and the God who called Jacob, the God who brought his people to Egypt, the God who rescued them through Moses, the God who preserved them in the wilderness and in captivity, the God who sent his one and only son to save them, the God who created you and me in his image. He provides another way. He provides a way to value human life, every human life. I want to explore God's heart for every human life this morning. We're in this series exploring the heart of God. And we focused these first three weeks, including today, on God's heart for humanity, God's heart for humankind. Week one, we saw that God has a heart for your heart. That, that, that man may look at outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. He cares about that place in you where your actions are birthed. He cares about your convictions. He cares about what's happening in you that, 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 that works itself out through your behaviors and, and, and the words that you share and the things that you think. He cares about that heart, that seat of decision-making and will inside of you. He has a heart for your heart. We saw last week that God has a heart for imperfect and broken people. In fact, that God accomplishes his perfect plan through imperfect people. And today we want to explore this idea of God's heart for every human life. 
every human life. Whether that human life is still growing inside the womb or that human life is lying in a hospice bed nearing the end. Whether that human life is in just the early hours of growing as a child, this rapid, ordered multiplication of cells or is fully developed and being delivered into the world. Whether that life is a rebellious teenager or an apathetic middle-aged adult, every human life is valuable. Whether that life is in Beijing, China, or Boone County, Indiana. Whether that human life is in Moscow, or just up the road in Mechanicsburg. Whether that human life is in Lebanon, Indiana, or the country of Lebanon. Whether that human life is light-skinned or dark-skinned or every shade of pigment in between. We need to see and to appreciate the evidence, the, the, the weight of the value of every human life. And to help us do this today, we're going to um, look into some words of David in Psalm 139. David is called a man for God's own heart. And so we're looking into the life of David, lessons we can learn from his life, things that he's written that help us see the heart of God. Again, our goal is not to be like David. We don't want David's heart. We want a heart like God's. And so what does God say about the value of every human life? And Psalm 139 is this intimate, personal reflection on human life and the relationship of that life to his or her creator and it gives us an opportunity to think about just the immense value and worth of every human life in the eyes of God. And that's something I'd encourage you to maybe make this a little more personal for you. We, we don't know where David is when he writes these words. I would guess that David's in a place that is beneficial to him in reflecting. Um, I think we all probably have those places. There are places where we're able to, to get away to and just, just think more and not be so distracted. Maybe for David it was... Um, a walk through a garden, or maybe it was getting out a little ways from Jerusalem and, and, and speaking with the Lord. Maybe it was just lying in his bed, the oil lamp lit and flickering. Maybe, maybe it was sitting in a favorite chair. But what is that place for you? Where is it that you like to reflect? Maybe for you, it's a hammock on a day that's far different from today. It's not cold and windy and snowy. Uh, maybe for you, it's a favorite chair with a lamp nearby. Maybe for you it is lying in bed in the early morning or late at night, or maybe for you it's walking out, or maybe for you it's getting away to a park somewhere and finding a vista overlooking a beautiful creation. Where is it that you like to reflect? Maybe just imagine yourself there and encourage you to participate in this intentional, personal, intimate reflection that David has on human life. We're gonna look at verses one through six first. Here's what David writes. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Before we even begin to look at what this says about God and how he acts towards or 
views human beings, I just want to start with the very first word, you. Um, our, our English versions are a little misleading. The very first word of this psalm, if you look at the Hebrew text, which it would have been originally penned in, is actually the name of God. The name that we would translate and see in our Bibles as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's, it's, a, it's a term, if we were to speak it in our, our best, we, we typically use the term Yahweh. We add vowels to the Y-H-W-H, the Yohevahe, this, this name of God. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the name that God is referred to when he speaks to Moses at the burning bush. It's what we often refer to as the I am. It's this term that speaks to God and his greatness and how no one gave God a start. He just was and he just keeps going. He's the God who was and is and is to come. He is the great I am. And that's how David starts this psalm. More literally translated, we would say that I am has searched me and knows me. That may not seem powerful to you, but to use the powerful name of God to say that he is the one who searches me. He is the one who knows me. And I would just submit that any deep, correct appreciation for the value of human life has to begin by recognizing the absolute greatness of God. If we don't know the greatness of God, we likely will never know the value of every human life. And so the I am knows us. This knowing is a theme of the psalm. It begins with knowing. And if you look to the end of the psalm, it ends with knowing. A plead from David to know his heart. The word know here is yada in the original language. It speaks this intimate knowledge. And, and here's what David says. He says, you have searched me, great God, and you know me. You have searched me, like you have mined the depths of my life and you know everything about me. It's this marvelous idea to think about. And then he, he tries to articulate it more. You can see him just grabbing for words. God, you know when I sit and when I rise. It's an expression that occurs elsewhere. I think of Deuteronomy 6, 7 to speak about the whole activity of the human life. You know when I sit, when I rise. You, you know the activity of my life, God. You know everything that I'm doing, everything that I've done, God. You are all knowing. There's a word we use for that, by the way, when we speak of God. It's the word omniscience. It means that God knows everything. It speaks to the greatness of God, but it also speaks to the value of human life, that he would know every detail about our lives. You perceive my thoughts from afar. David says, God, you know what I'm going to think before I even think it. That might even be a paralyzing thought to you. Because if we're honest, there are things that we've thought that we hope nobody ever knows that we've thought. And yet God knows. You discern my going out and my lying down. You discern my travels and my rest. This idea of discern is, it can be used of sifting and winnowing. Like, like God can sort our activity into a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet and see everything that we have done. He knows the intricate details. You're familiar with all my ways. And it's just like David's just reflecting and mining and kind of getting drawn off into this mystery. And he says, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. 
before the neurological impulses of my brain trigger the muscle in my mouth to move and to formulate words and the vocal cords to engage. God, you know all of that. God's intimate knowledge of us, does it not express the value of human life? It expresses the value of human life because if God didn't care to know every detail of our lives, he would discard us like an unwanted textbook. Yet he knows everything. And if some of you use the Life360 app that allows you to subscribe to a service and the app goes on your smart device, your smartphone and, and your parents or, or your, your, your spouse, you can see where they go, what they're doing, how fast they drove, how much gas is left in the car, like how much uh, batteries left on the phone. Like you can know all these details and, and God knows that and so much more. And it speaks to the value of your life and my life. It brings David to this initial conclusion. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Uh, the, the, the translation, I think, for 2022 is that this blows our mind. We, we are finite beings. Like We, we, we know that, 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 that we cannot know everything. And so the idea that there is one that can know everything just kind of causes our brains to like, glitch a little bit. Like the idea that someone can know every detail, can know every thought, can know every word that is spoken and those that we had to bite and we chose not to say. And quite honestly, probably more of those we should bite and choose not to say. God knows all of that. And it speaks to the value of human life. But it's not just that God knows everything. This great God, the great I am, is present everywhere. Look at verses seven through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And he goes into these terms of contrast. He says, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Maybe your Bible says Sheol. For, for, for David, for this Israelite man, the, the furthest vertical expanse he could think of was the heavens. That's the, the farthest above himself as he could go. And the, the furthest he could think below is the depths. Sheol. And so David is saying in this contrast, like if I go as high as I can go, if I go as low as I go, guess what? You're there and you're everywhere in between. And he uses a, a different contrast. He says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. For David, as he would look out, he could look to the east and know that that's where the sun rises. And God, you're there. He could look to the far side of the sea, the Mediterranean, the furthest he could see and say, God, you're there. And you're there everywhere in between. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. God, if it's so dark, maybe you can't see me. But verse 12, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is a light to you. Another contrast between dark and light. David is saying, God, you are everywhere. You are, you are present everywhere. And again, there's another big term we use to describe God's all-presentness. It's his omnipresence. His omnipresence, that God could be everywhere. And again, that causes our mind, if we're honest, I think, to, to glitch a little bit because we can't be present everywhere. I, probably if I had a dollar for every time my mother told me that she can't be present everywhere, I probably would be rich because she'd have multiple kids. There were four of us clamoring for her and she would say, kids, I can't be everywhere at the same time. And yet God is not bound by our limitations. And again, what does that mean for us? It's not just that David is 
inspired and awed by this, but you and I should be, that, that God can be everywhere. This is what gives hope to the promise about those who call upon the name of the Lord and they'll be saved, is because that at any moment, our God is present everywhere and it just takes us calling out to him, our faith expressing itself in words and coming to our rescue. He's present everywhere. But it's not just that he knows us and that he's omniscient, that he's all-knowing. It's not just that he's present with us and present everywhere, that he's omnipresent. It's, it's even more than that. Look at his careful, powerful, creative work, verses 13 through 16. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. What a powerful image that I am, the great and mighty creator of all the universe, who, who spins galaxies into motion and carves rivers with his hand, is involved in the intricate and intimate development of the child inside the womb. That rapid, ordered multiplication of cells inside the mother's womb, God is the agent of that creation. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God, you knew how long I would live. God, you knew how long that child in the womb would live. Whether the mother was able to carry that child for eight days or eight weeks and then experience the grief and the tragedy of the child's life ending. Or that child is born and that child lives to be 50 or 80 or 100 or more. God knows the number of those days. Again, there's a word we use, omniscience for him being all-knowing and omnipresence for his ability to be in all places. And there's another word we use for God and it says omnificence, his unlimited creative power, his limitless ability to create. And again, it speaks to the value of human life. I think of the words of the psalmist, what, what is man that you are mindful of him? Like, God cares deeply for every human life that he would intricately weave us, that he would make us and form us in his image. Again, it speaks to the value of human life. It speaks to the value of your life. Some of you just need to own that. Some of you don't feel very valuable. Some of you need to be reminded that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. What would happen in your life if you knew that full well as the psalmist does? And these reflections on how much God knows human beings and how much God is present with them and his intricate work in creating them leaves the psalmist to these reflective, awe-inspiring thoughts in verses 17 and 18. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them, just this 
reflection on his creative power and being uh, able to know us in every place and to be present everywhere. Like, God, the, it's too precious, God. It's, these thoughts overwhelm me. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And yet when I awake, I'm still with you. As you think about God's intimate knowledge of you, the great I am's knowledge of you, his presence with you and with every human being if they will acknowledge him, his infinite creative power, does that leave you just reflecting and saying, God, these, these thoughts are, are too wonderful for me. They're, they're, they're too numerous for me. If you read ahead to verses 19, 20, 21, and 22, which we'll do in a minute, um, it seems to be a pretty abrasive switch. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. This seems to be a pretty sudden shift, doesn't it? God, you know us. You know my thoughts. You know my words before I speak them. God, you are everywhere. I cannot run you. I can't hide from you. God, you created me. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. God, will you destroy other people? Again, remember that David is expressing poetry here. David is not saying that the people that are wicked don't matter to God. But what David is struck by is that there are people who will hurt and wrong and abuse the bloodthirsty. They will harm others who are valued by God. And so he calls upon God to act justly. He sees that it's not right that people will treat other human beings as anything less than valued creations of God. And so David does what probably we should all do, maybe with different words now in today's world, to pray for God to ask justly. God, work to protect the value, for people to recognize your value. Work against those who harm human life. If we value human life, shouldn't we be working on behalf of, of helping others experience that value, that value that's found only in him and life in him and faith in him? Then David reflects more and it gets personal again. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Yes, he has a holy indignation when people treat others in a wrong way, but David says, you know what, God, ultimately, you work with them, you deal with them, but God, you deal with me. Reveal in my heart if there's anything wrong. God, God, God show me if there's any way in me that does not honor the value that you have placed in my life and on my life. And if you're a disciple of Jesus in this room, I think that's the question that we have to ask. Would we be brave enough 
to pray to God and to speak to him and say, God, you know me. You are present everywhere. God, you intimately created me. Would you test me? Would you search me? Would you know my anxious thoughts? Would you look at my life? Would you reveal if there's anything offensive in me so that I might live in a way that reflects the value that you have placed on me? What would happen if we asked God how to live in response to the value that he has placed on our lives? What would change in how we treat others, how we treat ourselves? Just some thoughts that occurred to me. I think if uh, you are not yet a follower of Jesus, here are some thoughts I had. Even as we think about today being the Sunday that is closest to the um, anniversary of Roe v. Wade, uh, typically that's set aside as the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Sometimes that's celebrated the week leading up to. Some celebrated that on January 16th. and some churches, it's celebrated uh, like today, the day closest, uh, the 23rd of January. On this Sunday, we're to be reminded of the value of every human life, especially the value of that life in the womb. And even while our focus is typically on the unborn child, you and I need to acknowledge that the value of human life extends not just to the womb, but to every moment of a person's life. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the first step is recognizing that you are valuable. You are created. You are formed in his image. He knows you. He's present and ready and available to you. He made you intricately. You know, one of the costly side effects in our culture is that as we struggle to value human life is that many of us have experienced the wounds firsthand of people who have not valued us. And we could spend all day citing the awful things said about us, the lives that have been spread against us, the violence in some of our cases that has been administered to us, the abuse that some of you have experienced physically, verbally, sexually, emotionally, like, we all know the experience of being wounded and hurt. And that's why I hope that the words of Psalm 139 act like a healing salve, a, a healing balm, that they remind you, no matter how you've been treated, there is a God who loves you, who is involved in your creation, who invites you to experience a life that's lived out of the value that he has placed on you. But that life is only found in him. And one of the ways we can tell how valuable something is is uh, by how much someone is willing to pay for it. Uh, I remember as a kid that, um, and maybe I've even shared this before, I, I, would, I would just have these dreams of how much my baseball cards were going to sell for. And I would, I would tell my dad, I would, I would, I would look at the, um, there's a company called Beckett that had a magazine. I would look at the values and I would just tell my father, dad, look at this. This card's worth $5. Look at this. This card's worth $25. Look at this card's worth 30 cents. Like if I took all these cards together, I would be so rich. And my dad would say, Craig, that's great. But those cards ultimately are only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And to this day, I still have all those baseball cards and to this day, uh, I'm not as rich as I thought I would be. 
But if we look at our lives, we know our value by the price that someone was willing to pay for it. When we celebrated communion several moments ago, we looked to a God who willingly sent his son to live in human flesh, to be exposed to all that we are exposed to, to be tempted in every way as we are, to deal with the junk of life that we have to deal with and yet to overcome and to die the death that we deserve. Paul tells us that we were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. The creator of the universe, this great I am who knows you and is present and intricately wove you, he died for you. And that gives you value beyond anything that we can begin to quantify or articulate. And if you want to experience that, we encourage you to reach out to someone if you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, to use the QR code that Audrey was talking about, or to email us at connect at lebanonchristian.org, especially if you're at home, to, to fill out a connection card, to come forward at the end of one of our worship experiences and talk to me or one of our elders that are here. Let's help you experience and come to know the value that God has placed on your life. And then the final challenge that I wrote down was, if you're already a disciple of Jesus, will you extend the heart of God, the heart that beats for the value of human beings? Will you live in a way that affirms that value to every human life? Our lives can be evidence of a better way. Just as much as there's evidence that we have a disregard for human life and the value of human life, our lives, how you live, how you treat other people can change how people see the value of human life. And so for you, what needs to change in how you treat others? What needs to change in how you talk to other people? What needs to change in the words that you share with those in your home behind closed doors? What needs to change in the words that you post to social media? What needs to change in, in how you resolve conflict? What needs to change? Do you, do you need to cease gossiping and slandering people and to, to speak in, in kind ways, letting nothing unwholesome come out of your mouth, but that which is useful to building and encouraging and building others up? How can we value other people with our words? How do you speak about politicians? Or do you pray for them as Paul encourages Timothy? How do you treat the poor and the brokenhearted? How do you treat your body? Do you treat it as though it's valued and created by God? How do you treat people who look differently than you? People who come from different countries and have different colored skin? How do we approach the life of the unborn child, but not just the life of the unborn child, but the life of the woman who aborted that child and perhaps a man who encouraged it? Will we surround them and uplift them and show them a better way? Will we be champions of the heart of God for the value of every human life? Will we reflect his heart? There, there are times when We'll be watching a show on YouTube or somewhere else and, and you'll see somebody use something that's valuable and they'll, they'll hurt it or they'll, they'll, they'll harm it in some way. Maybe there's this really nice knife or this nice tool and the person doesn't realize the value and so they misuse it and, 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 and me or our boys will watch, we'll kind of cringe, like, do they realize the value of what that is? 
What would happen if we realized the value of our lives and the value of others and we committed to having the heart of God to promote the value of every human life? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for these words of David. Um, God, I pray your words that he or she that would have ears to hear that they would hear. Because I believe your word is clear. And God, would you convict and would you draw us uh, into your life? Would you help us to see the value of every human life? God, that people will drive behind on the way out of the parking lot today. Father, the, the people that we disagree with. Father, the, the, the men and women that may wait on tables for us at lunch. The clerk at the register. Uh, the salt truck on the road. And every, every man, woman, and child, would you help us to see the value of life? And God, would we live in a way that affirms that value and promotes that value? And God, if we don't yet see our value in your eyes, would you draw us to you to know our worth, to know that we're bought at a price? And it's in your name we pray, in the name of Jesus.